over three centuries, a steady stream of men, women, and children followed the beacon of liberty which this light symbolizes. They brought to us strength and moral fiber, developed in a civilization centuries old, but fired anew by the dream of a better life in America. They brought to one new country the cultures of a hundred old ones. This recording of Franklin Delano Roosevelt commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty in 1936 is one of the earliest you can find of a U.S. president talking about the country as a melting pot of people from all over the world blending to form one culture. The speech was not just about the statue and the idea it represents, but also about Ellis Island, Liberty's closest neighbor. Looking down this great harbor, I like to think of the countless number of inbound vessels that have made the port. I like to think of the men, men and women who, with the break of dawn off Sandy Hook, have strained their eyes to the west for a first glimpse of the new world. While most of it resembled the boilerplate American dream rhetoric of today, FDR's speech was talking about immigration as if it were a thing of the past, the foundation for the modern American nation, but no longer an integral part of its future. Within this present generation, that stream from abroad has largely stopped. We have within our shores today the materials out of which we shall continue to build an even better home for liberty. They say more than a hundred million Americans today have an ancestor who passed through Ellis Island. When immigration debates divide the country, and some argue that immigrants bring nothing but trouble, Ellis Island is invoked as one of many reminders that the vast majority of us came from somewhere else. What's easy to forget is that by 1936, Ellis Island had come to play a larger role in keeping migrants out than welcoming them in. And while exclusionary practices were nothing new, the number of migrants being excluded and deported from the U.S. had reached unprecedented levels. One such person was a man named Leon, a Jewish immigrant from Istanbul, who had sat for a deportation hearing at Ellis Island in the shadow of liberty just a few weeks before FDR's speech. Immigration and naturalization services would order him sent back to Turkey. Another was Lefki, who was displaced by the destruction of her home region of Izmir. She was already awaiting deportation to Greece, her hearing at Ellis Island having occurred a year prior. By the end of 1936, Toma, a young Assyrian man from Diyarbakir, would also have his hearing there after a large human smuggling network from Cuba was discovered by U.S. authorities. None of these people had entered the country with proper documentation. Documentation that a few years prior would have never been needed in the first place. And none was guilty of any other crime. Rather than a new beginning, Ellis Island seemed for them the end of the American dream. Such hearings weren't only taking place at Ellis Island. Deportation was everywhere. It was happening in the growing cities of the Midwest, like Gary, Indiana, where a Muslim man named Hassan, from modern-day Lebanon, first met the beginning of the end of his American dream. It was in the prisons, like the federal penitentiary in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where a man who went by Frank Johnson would attempt one last con by obscuring his origins to find a way out of expulsion. It was even in psychiatric hospitals, where a Turkish dentist named Akif and an Armenian refugee named Abram 
both faced deportation because they were supposedly burdens on the cash-strapped American state. Back at Ellis Island, officials were doing a lot more to grease the wheels of expulsion than merely interrogating undesirable immigrants. They were corresponding with foreign governments and consulates to secure passports for deportees like John and Harry from the Dodecanese Islands. They were tracking down paperwork and arrival information for people like Tommy, a Macedonian migrant authorities worked to remove after a bust on his wife's brothel. He was just one of many potential Greek nationals who kept immigration officers and diplomats busy. They were so numerous that the U.S. diplomatic archives contain a separate collection with nothing but deportation case files pertaining to Greece during the late 30s. The people I've just mentioned were drops in a sea of migrants who washed up on American shores. They had come from different places, spoke different languages, practiced different religions, and they shared little more than what they shared with the countless other people subject to deportation over those years. But they had one other thing in common. Just like hundreds of other Americans of the period, they were all born in the Ottoman Empire. Yet by 1936, the Ottoman Empire had been dead and gone for more than a decade. These people didn't have much connection to the post-Ottoman world anymore. And that's one reason why their deportation cases are so fascinating and meaningful for us today. Because the idea of deporting them was so impossible, even ludicrous. And yet, that's precisely what the American government would attempt to do. Using records of legal proceedings, diplomatic correspondence from the state archives, and interviews with scholars of migration history, this podcast series brings each of these stories to light. This podcast explores how the unmaking of an empire became intertwined with the making of a modern nation. It tells the tales of people told to go back to a country that no longer existed. This is Deporting Ottoman Americans. gentlemen in the academic world, it sounds to me as if you hadn't uh, really had the contact with the 90% of the people of this country and of all other countries who have the struggle. Our unemployment problem was transferred to the United States. The individual must be a servant of the collective order in any way. We expect people who live in this country to play by the rules. I favor rigidly restricted immigration. But the ruling principle must not be that a man is free. We know that the state is nothing but the organization of power in the hands of the dominant economic class. Social order is You cannot have order with everybody talking at once. Our nation is the enduring dream of every immigrant who ever set foot on these shores. And we are most generous in our treatment of the aliens. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. To the 16,500,000 foreign born in our midst, there would be no serious unemployment problem to harass us. Welcome to the Deporting Ottoman Americans podcast. I'm your host, Chris Grayton. <laughs>